Welcome to episode number 70 of the Bearded Marketers podcast, the only internet marketing podcast that matters. I'm Rob. I'm Corey. We're bringing the latest and greatest, the love stories, the terrifying tragedies of internet marketing every Monday morning at thebeardedmarketers.com slash podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and I don't know, maybe potentially some other things that I'm not aware of. I don't know what Corey's out there doing, submitting our podcast to. Betty Sneaky. <laughs> we also bring you the latest without any ads and also while we're drinking. So on that note, what are you drinking this week? I am returning back to my roots. Some Glenn Fittage 15 Double Neat. I had quite a bit last night, so I thought, you know, why just, just prolong the hangover. Yeah, keep it, keep it keep going. It going. Keep How it about going. yourself? I'm doing, I like just saying this, so that's why I'm drinking it on the podcast. Lafroig. <laughs> Oh, I just like that word. Burning tires. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know if it's a 10 or a 12. I can't remember how they how they roll. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't see the bottle from here. Had too much Lafroy. Can't read the <laughs> Lafroy. Uh, but yes, it is definitely burning tires. Very peaty, smoky. I'll be sweating this out for the next two I days. I don't know if this is actually true. Maybe someone, this is urban legend, but I've heard from someone that Lafroy, because of its taste profile, was actually not banned during Prohibition here in the United States because... The belief was it tasted so bad that no one wanted to drink it. Yeah, no one drinks it anyway. But I wonder if that's actually too interesting tidbit. But let's go ahead and get started. So for today, diverse, we go from the conceptual to the nitty gritty on data. So interesting lineup. The first thing that we wanted to cover was how the landscape with video might be changing in Google and has from our buddies over at Wistia. Great site if you haven't used them for video hosting. What are you doing? We're going to move right along to attribution across devices. Now, this is something that a lot of companies struggle with. And how do we get a good and accurate customer profile? Since we are talking about devices, that's going to be a great segue. Maybe I'm giving that away too early. But into tablet usage and how you need to potentially change up some of your marketing strategies and overall website planning to take advantage of what are some of those customer trends as it relates to tablet usage. Moving right along to, this is going to be a good one. I'm kind of excited about it because I think not a lot of people actually know what they're talking about, but predictive analytics. First of all, what is that? And second of all, is it actually right for you or something that you should be considering? And if we have some time leftover we'll get into some more topics but i think these are so juicy yeah i'm not even sure let's just jump right into it i'm so excited for so this google episode. and video why do they hate us tell us rob yeah so again like you said this is brought to us by our friends at wistia.com again not a paid shout out we pay them for our, That's our, true. our services this was brought up on their blog basically the title was where did my video snippets go for those of you not aware out there who maybe potentially aren't doing any video marketing why should be well, watching Wistia's videos on how easy it is. Maybe it doesn't apply to some people. I mean, let's say, for example, you're a payday loan company. I don't know how mm-hmm. you make the video that anyone cares about. You make one similar to that guy with the question mark suit <laughs> on the infomercial. Is that showing our age maybe a bit? I don't know. Maybe in this industry, I think that is. Young whippersnappers don't even know yeah. what we're talking about. Um, okay, so basically the gist of this article is if you do a Google search, I'm sure everyone out there has seen a little preview of a video, a little play button icon next to it, and a timestamp for how long the video is. Basically a video listing inside Google listings, right? So, you know, you see shopping ones, you see image ones, you also see video ones. So this is something that you can, this is code you can embed on your web page if you have a video on there that helps Google understand, okay, this is a page that has a video on it or is primarily about a video. 
So I'll include a little preview of the video, a little snapshot screenshot of it, and how long the video is and some information about it. So this was something that was catching on fire, right? Everyone's doing video marketing. Let's get some video listings in there. It'll increase our search engine result page click-through rates. Let's just get on that, right? Well, now they're gone. Surprise! Save for a few large major brands out there. Uh, obviously, YouTube still has them because that's a Google product. There are some other examples they had on Wistia.com. Things like Vimeo, Hulu, HGTV, National Geographic, Today, Discovery, TED. You know, some major brands are still showing video previews, but everyone else, they're all gone, including the Bearded Marketers, unfortunately. So what is the takeaway from this? Beyond just, okay, that sucks if you're doing video, now you don't get those snippets anymore. Is it even worth having those snippets? Dealing with all the code to put that on your site. I think it still is. Why I wanted to bring this up on the podcast was, I think it was either last week or the week before where we talked about author profile links and pictures being removed from search engine results on Google as well. I think you did a slow clap. Yes, (laughs) I was excited about that one. I'm a little disappointed about this one. But I think that this is pointing to a larger trend on Google, which I hope continues, which is sort of cleaning up, Mm. in my opinion, the search engine result pages, which have just been sort of inundated with icons, pictures, videos, all sorts of unnecessary crap on the search engine result pages. So I think this points to a larger issue, and that is that Google is realizing that a lot of these rich snippets that have been coming out over the last, I don't know, year or so, I mean, there's things like reviews, products, videos, whatever it is, are actually kind of being a detriment to people's usability on Google. I think people are maybe finding that it's kind of cluttering up some of the results But fear not, I don't think that these things are completely useless anymore. I still Mm -hmm. think that Google uses these things to understand what type of content is on the page. They're just not displaying those snippets as much. So, Well, I wonder, too, how much of it factors into... They can obviously read content on a web page. It's a little harder to discern the quality of content from some of these other media formats. And I'm wondering if there is some hesitation or backlash internally of... We showed these things and it looks cool, but potentially we are putting up to the top or displaying really crappy content in our results and calling extra attention to it. Because you have to remember from Google's standpoint, even though it's not their website that the video's on or about, it's seen as kind of a mark of approval from them. There's this implied consent into the content because they're serving it up. So they're always going to be chiefly concerned with reputation and how much quality is coming back in their results because that's why we use them or any search engine for that matter is the relevancy of the results and the quality that comes back. So I wonder if part of this is a retraction because they've realized we're calling extra attention to this content. People are taking advantage of it it's getting easier and easier to integrate. But the actual content itself that we're rendering out or calling attention to is actually not that good. I I definitely think that's it. I mean, that's why they've sort of fallen back to, we still show them for a majority of search results for these large brands. Right. But for everyone else, we've we've dropped them. Now, to be clear here, they they haven't disappeared completely. So I think, for example, if you actually click the videos tab, uh, you'll still see a lot of videos. Again, Google still uses that information to understand what kind of content is on your page. So if you do a Google search for videos on Mustangs crashing, 
Um, it, it will still, you know, pull back those results. It may not actually show the rich snippets for those though, but sure. it'll still understand that that page is about video and Google will understand that you're searching for something that has videos in it. So definitely wanted to mention, I think it's definitely a trend that Google is taking. I think, you know, as these things roll out, I think you had a great point there is that, you know, the, these features roll out and they're really useful in the beginning and they get flooded with crap and mm-hmm. they become a detriment to usability and trust in the brand and they just flood everything and it's not worth it anymore. I think you actually had a good point that I wanted to expound upon a bit in that there still is a lot of benefits in using video, particularly with us. What we found on the Beard Marketers is video helps us in two ways. One, it's a really great advertising vehicle on certain social media channels, Twitter, Facebook. It can really help set apart from the garbage or just the inundation of different content on those channels. But also, it does, as long as you're executing well, set a quality standard of that you are differentiating yourself from your competitors. I mean, it is... Easy to spot when people have dedicated some time into their content and their videos into their production and things like that. So we found video to be beneficial outside of just coming up in search engine results, particularly in those advertising mediums. Also, I feel like there's just a satisfaction, us personally, but just a quality difference in what some of the other podcasts or content generators out there might be doing in our space that we're able to facilitate for our listeners that I think just, again, helps us rise above the pack, which at the end of the day, as a marketer, that's what we're interested in with our company. We want to get those tactics that help people identify us as someone that's different and someone that we should give money or time or effort or whatever that material thing that we're asking from these people to dedicate. Yeah, absolutely. I think those are all good points. So another thing I wanted to talk about here, and this is more, you know, I don't have an article to go along with this. This is a rap session, you and I. I wanted to talk a little bit about attribution across devices. I don't think this is something we talk about much, you know, with the clients we have and the stuff we do normally, but I'm sure you have some experience with it. And I definitely wanted to bring this to the podcast because it's something that's only going to become more and more of an issue for a lot of advertisers out there as obviously uh, tablet usage explodes, as phone and mobile usage explodes. But more particularly because of the way that people use these devices I think a huge issue that a lot of people gloss over is the fact that, yes, I purchase most things on my MacBook, but when I read emails, it's almost always first on my phone. Mm -hmm. So, you know, your stats are really going to be messed up by something like that. Right. Your views seem like they're uniques from a new device, a new person can really throw off your attribution. Even if I buy off of my phone, you've lost a sort of attribution trail, I guess, if you want to throw that in quotes. You don't know where the first touch came from because I've jumped devices. There are a few ways around this that I wanted to bring up as well. This is something that I think, I don't know that there's a perfect solution to this. I don't know that there ever will be. And I think this is maybe just a point where we maybe have to back off our heavy reliance on analytics, try to understand more holistically why and how people would use our site and what makes sense and and not just pay attention solely to what our Google Analytics or whatever platform it is that we're using is, is telling us about our users. So here's a couple of ways you can try to marry this data across multiple devices and tie people together and try to understand that they're all coming from the same, that this all is the same person just on multiple devices. So one is, this is pretty straightforward, if you have a site that forces users to log in, That's pretty straightforward. Google Analytics has a new feature with their universal platform that allows you to tie in user IDs. So essentially you can pass 
unique user IDs to Google Analytics. It will tie back all that session behavior and all future sessions across multiple devices if this person is logged in. So that's pretty straightforward. If you have a site where people log in, this is something you need to be doing. So look into that. The other one, and this kind of goes into, there are a lot of different ways where you could try to create profiles of people based on emails they open and knowing that, okay, this person was on their MacBook or whatever. I know that's where they were. I sent them an email, but then they opened it in an iPhone. But because my email is my unique identifier, even though I'm not forcing people to log in, I still have that as a unique identifier. I can tie that to a number. And with that number, I can pass that to Google Analytics. If that makes sense, I don't know, in my crazy mind. I think so. I, I mean, people follows. obviously have to have some somewhat working knowledge to follow that train, yeah. but I mean, it makes sense. Okay, so those are a couple of ways that you can try to get around it. But outside of that, there aren't a lot of out-of-the-box solutions. Maybe you're aware of some of these. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can provide some insight. There's not. And you know, I was going to say that taking a step back, over the last couple of years, essentially what's happened, at least in the marketing analytics space, is with the rise of all these, you know, I would say back in 2007, things were great. We just had to worry about it laptops, very, it was very simple. desktops, and some simple of those times. people with the crazy iPhones. But from a marketing standpoint, as it pertained to online, we felt like we had a pretty good handle of what was going on. There were some outliers in there. You know, there was video or certain things we won't really get into of, you know, we felt like things weren't necessarily getting tracked or flash or things like that. But as the world has become diverse in its not only devices, but also usage patterns has happened. You know, you talked about now single users are using multiple devices. They digest content differently. I always read emails on my mobile device, but I'm going to be purchasing on my MacBook. And really what that's given rise to is the IT team has become even more important, but also this aspect of data analytics and number crunching and big data and how do we digest all this information. But to your point, there also becomes a point where do we have to become comfortable with not knowing everything? And, you know, we were talking about the other, I think it was last week or the week before, that there are already some major gaping holes in analytics. There was that study by Groupon who ran the test of trying to understand how much of their traffic is really organic by shutting themselves off of Google and found that a huge majority of their, in air quotes, direct traffic or what they thought was type in or bookmarked or copy and pasted in the URL was actually organic. And there's all these fragments of data that you really don't have necessarily the most accurate handle on. And I think what scares people is people have been accustomed to using tools to tell them what to do. I have... These many people coming from email, they spend this much money. As someone that is budgeting from a marketing standpoint, I need to invest this much because that's my return. Now with all these devices and usage patterns, it really takes a person to critically look at what makes sense from these numbers. How do I understand how people are interacting with my website? And it's no longer a very simple one-to-one relationship anymore of understanding what people are doing. You have to go beyond the numbers and understand what's actually influencing the numbers that are getting reported on, which I think scares some people because it takes a different mindset of no longer is it I can just hire someone that can look at the numbers and chew things out. It really takes that analytical work and understanding what goes into these users and how they're interacting with me. There are some crazy solutions out there where, you know, you can keep a lot of custom databases and things like that. And I think they have their place, certainly, for some businesses and marrying all that data up together because it's essential for them because of the numbers that are involved. Mm-hmm. 
But I think that marketers kind of have to find that good medium for them and get to a point where we're either comfortable not knowing everything or be prepared that the investment to piece together this patchwork of data that is now flowing in is ever more complex and will take a serious effort that is not only a one-time investment, but is an ongoing, evolving, organic thing. Well, I think to your point where you're sort of talking about I think this is actually becoming a larger issue, and this is probably brought on by the fact that Google Analytics is free. It's so easy to jump into all of these testing tools. You know, you and I personally, we've been talking a lot about uh, statistically significant tests. What Mm -hmm. does that mean? What are the other ways you can measure tests? What are all of the different models you can even use? And I think part of this entire problem is the fact that these analytics programs try to take very complex information and try to draw simple conclusions that oftentimes aren't what they on first look appear to be. I was in a meeting the other day where people were talking a lot about time on site and there was a fundamental misunderstanding by everyone in the meeting about what that metric even really meant and the fact that yes it can be kind of useful I think especially in a multi-session or a multi-page visit session But when you start looking at landing pages, that's a very difficult metric to sort of use because someone, this goes into how these analytics programs work, but that's just a simple example. Again, you know, significance, right? It seems like a very simple thing to look at. Oh, if we hit 95 significance, it's valid. That's not really what that means. It doesn't mean what you think it does. And there's a lot more to it than that. I don't want to get into it too much (laughs) here, but I think this is maybe another topic for something else where we can talk about the simplification of analytics programs. But all of those things, I think, play into whatever the hell we were supposed to be talking about when we first started. (laughs) We're talking about attribution and there are some ways where companies can get at that data much more easily. You know, Google has rolled out some tools. Adobe has some as well if you Mm -hmm. use Omniture. But a lot of that takes work and it will take a effort on all of the pieces of your orchestra that is your marketing department to work together. So if you're using MailChimp or ExactTarget to do your emails or constant contact, now all these things can no longer be siloed. They all have to talk with one another to keep some of that attribution and understand, yes, this is actually Rob that's opening up the email. This is actually Rob that's actually going to convert later on on a different device. And how do I need to understand all of these usage patterns and Mm -hmm. make sure that I'm putting my marketing dollars and effort where it's best served and not like you said in your example, I look at my usage patterns and mobile's doing all my email clicks, but it's not spending anything. Well, let's not invest anything into email or mobile because it's tablets and desktops that are doing all the buying. Well, that's really only part of the story. So attribution is something that you should really take some time delve into, but you also need to understand what is going to be the cost benefit analysis for you. How much effort are we going to have to go through and how much level of uncertainty are we comfortable with versus the trade-off of how much effort and cost it's going to be to get all those things working together. Absolutely. Great topic. We're going to have to expand on this in a much longer episode. Maybe we spend half an episode talking about something like that. So tell me now about predictive analytics. I tried to read this blog post. I could not. Not a very good blog post, but that's actually why I thought it was interesting to talk about in that I I don't think many people understand what predictive analytics are. So first of all, when we talk about this, because this is kind of a buzzword in the industry, what we're trying to understand is with the data that's coming in, trying to predict a future behavior. Now, some people think that collecting customer data is predictive analytics. No, 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 no. That's just part of the equation. So when we talk about predictive analytics, 
there are platforms and companies out there that are harvesting data, not just from their own customers, but there's a bunch of big data aggregators out there that you can go and purchase demographic information out there. There's also big companies out there like Blue Kai that will partner with you and actually determine who those people are and what are some of the interests that they've expressed on other sites. Tons of analytics out there. And what we're trying to extrapolate from these data sets is how can I predict about something that you, Rob, or me, Corey, or anyone is going to do based on some of these behaviors that you are exhibiting or that we've seen people like you exhibit on our site? And how do we actually take that to the next step and get ahead of what before you're even thinking it. So I was just going to say, can you give me a simple, because I'm a layman, mm -hmm. can you give me a simple example of what you would consider predictive? An example that happens a lot on multiple websites is establishing persona groups. So we notice that people that come in from this referral source typically like to shop men's t-shirts and they also typically buy let's say short sleeve t-shirts or whatever, using an e-commerce example. Now, what a lot of people will do is have dynamic websites that will recognize you came from X source. So we're going to adjust our sorts and our websites to bring those products to the top because we've learned over time that people coming in from that source typically like these products. And so we're going to get ahead of it, even though we may have never even seen you based on the people that have come from the website that you just traversed mm -hmm. to come onto our site, those are typically their behaviors. So we're going to go ahead and bucket you into that experience. As a simpler example, would you consider this predictive related products on a product page? Depending on how you come up with these related products, is that potentially predictive marketing? I'd say yes in that case, okay. depending on what's the algorithm working in the background on how that gets determined. Because some people use different algorithms to achieve different business goals. Sometimes it's based on user behaviors of the past. Some companies actually will generate those suggestions based on inventory that they're trying to sell. So it's actually not based on anything predictive other than they're trying to clear out inventory because mm -hmm. it's sitting around collecting dust or they feel like these products have a high velocity. So whatever that algorithm is, some of them can be based on, yes, predictive analytics. Okay. So why I wanted to talk about it is, again, it's a buzzword for a lot of people. And I think it can be worth it, especially in the e-commerce space. But what you have to be careful of, and a lot of people get in trouble with this, is small sample sizing. So if you're not going to partner with some of these big data aggregators, what you're going to run into trouble on it, if your site doesn't get enough traffic, is there are these companies that will sell you on learning customer behaviors. And the problem that you're going to run into is you're going to start adjusting your site experience based on learning things about just a small group of people. And what you're going to end up doing is making some bad assumptions based on a really small sample size. So I've found that quite a few companies that I've worked with in the past have used some of these solutions and, and noticed that their site performance seems to be slipping a bit. And that's really just because they're trying to do too much with too little. Mm -hmm. And yeah. they're trying to get too fancy for what their maybe site can bear at that point. And I think, honestly, some companies, instead of maybe going the predictive route, would find themselves in a better position doing some panels with their customers and creating their own personas based on what they actually know about their customers and purchase behaviors and maybe just sending off some of their past order history to someone to analyze and create their own personas. So I'd say be careful of that and also just be careful of 
there's this strong desire to become one-to-one personalization. You know, that's like the end goal of most marketers. Be careful about the assumptions that you make with people and that we live in a very diverse world. And yes, some people have very similar usage patterns based on where they're coming from or, you know, what we can extrapolate from people. But there are certain places and information sets that we can use that is it becomes very difficult to make an assertion. An interesting example is a site like Reddit. They appeal to such a wide range of people. Obviously, there is a strong presence of young, neck-bearded people, but you know there are also a lot of these sub-communities that have wildly different tastes and preferences and things like that. So just be careful when you get too granular with your predictive analytics and bucketing people that you're not making so much assumptions that you're putting people into a very narrow experience that they find you unrelevant. Be careful of finding that balance. Well, I think, you know, I was mentioning statistical significance in testing earlier. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I've always felt with, you know, this sort of predictive stuff, but even with automated marketing, that you fall into this trap of you are now marketing to such a narrow group and you're crafting this unique email for them that it's almost impossible for you to actually prove that that's actually performing better than just sending a generic one to everyone. Well, not only that too, is like, is that extra effort worth the benefit? Exactly. Yeah. Like, so we're able to eke out an extra 5% maybe. If we're even able to prove it. Right. Right. But how much is my time worth not only creating that unique experience, but curating it, making sure that when we do a change to our homepage, that all these other things aren't breaking because we've created this complex web of experiences and things. So not only is my time going to be sucked up generating this unique creatives or making sure everything's working correctly, but also just this fragility that we can create in our ecosystems of this personalization that has essentially created a monster that we we can't necessarily keep up with. I mean, not to mention the quarter million dollar a year platform now that we're using to facilitate the automated sure, marketing or absolutely. whatever it is you're doing. So I think we spent plenty of time on that. Two other things that we wanted to get into is talk a little bit about tablet usage. Now, I feel like tablets sometimes are a little bit of a redheaded stepchild when it comes to the device world. And yeah, I think mobile gets a lot of attention. Obviously, a ton of people have cell phones, but tablets is a huge device online. And I think people sometimes, like I said, gloss over it and fail to realize how much purchasing power is behind some of these devices and how you potentially need to market or understand that these devices are here to stay, but also that you're directing attention to these devices as well to potentially make unique experiences, whether it be apps or whatever it might be, that these can be viable places for you to spend some marketing time and effort and dollars. So just a couple things that I want people to take away from this week, just to chew on as well, is keep this in mind. In 2013, tablets continued to take market share away from traditional PC sales. In fact, PC shipments dropped by 98% in the year 2013 with tablets making up a lion's share of that pickup. 98% drop of PC desktops in 2013 to tablets. Massive, massive. So here are some interesting demographics using some US versus UK metrics. And this is an infographic you can get on getelastic.com. Interesting site. It's very e-commerce based, but people that are in the Legion space need to pay attention to these devices as well. 82 million people in the US have a tablet. I think the last census was something a little north of 300 million. So you can do the math there. More than 41% of people in the UK will use a tablet regularly this year. 
30% of U.S. households with internet access own at least one tablet. So think about that. I mean, that is a huge amount of people in your target audience that have that device. Now, some of the more interesting things that I saw in this infographic, just to keep, you know, we were talking about how people access some of our sites and what they use devices for. 51% use tablets to browse products to build wish lists for later purchases. So again, I kind of wanted to emphasize this is a huge portion of people that are on your websites, collecting information, being exposed to your brand, you need to pay attention to these devices because at least in my experience, tablets typically far outperform mobile devices in the way of how much people are willing to spend, which might be a reflection on the demographics of who owns tablets. But also I find just normal conversion rates of websites much higher on tablet devices. So why I say that is not only do we have a population that makes sense to spend some time on, but also you might want to encourage more usage of these devices on your websites because we know we can get higher conversion rates. And that's where it comes into play where we might want to build tablet unique experiences or applications where people really want to share it. It will be an experience of one that is memorable and people want to have that virility where they're sharing with their friends to experience and things like that. And I'll wrap this up with, if you don't think tablets should be spent time with, here's one last metric that you should really pay attention to. It is estimated that more tablets will be shipped in 2015 than desktop computers and laptops combined. So pay attention to these devices in the future, and I think that your efforts will definitely be paid off. Last thing we're going to talk about is content testing. So there's an interesting article on ClickZ, and I know that you've worked in the content space a little bit more than I have, but there are some interesting tools out there that people need to be aware of to actually test how people are consuming your content, but also how engaging your headlines are. I find that not a lot of people... In this space, there's a lot of A-B testing that goes around. It's a lot of button tests or, you know, how do we change our landing pages around? But not too many people test what their headlines are and the resulting shares that might materialize because of that. Now, I know that there are some companies out there like Huffington Post that it's rumored that they actually roll out nine or 10 headlines per article and test each one to see which one gains the most traction. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure that's fact. So I, I know that for the fact that Boston... Boston.com, which is Boston Globe, I guess. They I guess so. They mm -hmm. definitely do that. So, so I, I would think that, you know, for people out there that are marketers that have blogs, take some time and look at what content testing tools are out there, particularly around headlines and how you might craft your blog content to get better absorption. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a blog. It could just be normal. I mean, it depends on what your business model is, but just your website content in general and see, is there some gains to be had on learning how to write correctly to get the most traction for the content that you're spending so much time on to generate. Hopefully you're not just churning out garbage, but there are some testing tools out there that we'll maybe tweet out as well for you to look into to potentially do some headline testing or, or at least start that conversation. Sometimes it's not just about testing your buttons or your forms or things like that, but how are you actually communicating the juicy bits that you have that's going to do it for us on this episode number 70 thank Cheers, you yeah. so much for your time we enjoyed ourselves if you did leave us a review on itunes stitcher whatever app you found us on it'd be greatly appreciated if you have a suggestion for the show maybe you listen every week and go those beer guys they're pretty smart but they didn't think about this or they forgot about this well, let us know warning though 
No pitches. Yeah, no pitches. That's actually one of the reasons why we started this is because we felt like most podcasts were just sales pitches anyway. But you can either let us know on thebeardmarketers.com or you can give us a call 904-270-9603. Rob waits by the phone day and night. Also, call in or leave us a line if there's something you're struggling with. We have a lot of experience in the industry, and if we can't help you out, we can certainly get you in touch with someone that can. Oftentimes, when we get those types of messages, we bring those on to the show because you're not the only one struggling with it. So definitely leave us a line there if there's something that you need some help on. But again, thank you so much for your time. This is Rob and Corey signing off, and we'll see you next week. Yeah. Cheers.